Before we begin proceedings today, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respect to the knowledge embedded within the Aboriginal custodianship of the country. Uh, sovereignty was never ceded. And in terms of uh, preamble today, I want to acknowledge and also thank uh, the work of Meredith Hall, who's just stepped out of the room now, who organises Sydney Ideas, does a fabulous job, and has set up the organisation for tonight. Thanks are also due to uh, colleagues within the Sydney University Research Community for Latin America. I was just looking for you there, Fernando, and lost you in the, in the crowd. Uh, Circla, who have also co-organised and assisted with some of the outreach for today's event. So much appreciated. It's kind of nice to finish with this collaborative uh, focus at the end of the year. And finally, thanks are also due to Barry Carr at La Trobe University, who's organising the big Institute of Latin American Studies uh, 40 Years uh, event in Melbourne, which many of us I know are travelling to and, and presenting at in the next couple of days. So many thanks, Barry. Um, so without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce our speaker tonight, uh, Alan Knight, who is Professor Emeritus uh, of Latin American History at the University of Oxford, uh, who began specialising in Latin American history uh, partly as a result of the influence of the Cuban Revolution, which is, of course, uh, a shadow over geopolitical events uh, at the present. Alan has held posts at the University of Essex, the University of Texas, Austin, and at the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at the University of California, San Diego, and he became the chair of Latin American history uh, at Oxford in 1992. And he directed there the Latin American Center and became a fellow of St. Anthony's College uh, at Oxford at the same institution. In 2009, we joked about this yesterday that Alan wasn't wearing it, and he's still not wearing it now, but in 2009, Alan received the Order of the Aztec Eagle uh, for his research on Mexico, which is the highest order awarded to a foreigner uh, by the country. The intellectual backstop for this award is vast, uh, and it would, would include the award-winning two-volume um, history on the Mexican Revolution, which was published in 1986 with Cambridge University Press entitled The Mexican Revolution, and more recently, an additional two volumes on Mexico entitled Mexico, the Colonial Era, uh, and Mexico from the Beginning to the Spanish Conquest. Both of those were published also with Cambridge University Press in 2002. And we were debating this last night over dinner, but there is still discussion of a planned third volume on the modern era to complete that set. This year as well, Alan uh, published um, in Oxford's very short introduction series a wonderful book uh, on the Mexican Revolution, a very short introduction, which grapples with the spatial and the geographical unevenness of the Mexican Revolution in really astute ways, and I thought that was a, a wonderful read. There is also much more work in the pipeline, and indeed today's paper, I think, is part of that ongoing pipeline. So without further ado, I'd like you to uh, give a round of applause uh, to Alan Knight, who will be presenting for about uh, one hour on the lawless robbery under the volcano, British cultural commentators on the revolutionary Mexico from 1920 to 1940. Thank you very much, Alan. Well, thank you very much, Adam, University of Sydney colleagues, and I will echo thanks to my old uh, friend Barry Carr at La Trobe, who was the one who managed to get me here to Australia uh, on this occasion, my second visit, uh, and to enable me to be here. Um, so this paper was written 
two years ago in 2015, and 2015 was known as the annual dual, the dual year, which was because it was the so-called year of the UK and Mexico and Mexico in the UK. That's one of these sort of schemes that's devised to improve trade, cultural relations, investment, also to get President Peña Nieto a state visit to London so he could have dinner with the Queen. Didn't seem to have improved his political standing very much. Um, and there was a, uh, one of the few academic events attached to the year was a gathering at St Andrews University where, where we were asked to give papers about Britain and Mexico to fit within the theme of the annual dual. And I'd done stuff on Britain and Mexico in diplomatic political terms, a certain amount of work on economic relationships. I thought I'd do something different. So I did this, for me, unusual novel focus on literary connections and particularly a clutch of very important British novelists, major figures, Green, Huxley, War, Lawrence um, and Malcolm Lowry, and I'll be talking about all of them and filling them in a bit, um, who all went to Mexico about the same time in the revolutionary period in the 1920s and 30s. Now, I was aware, and it became even more clear when I wrote it, that, of course, most of what they said about revolutionary Mexico was extremely negative and unpleasant. So I don't think my paper in any way contributed to sort of bettering good relations between uh, Mexico and the UK. On the other hand, the British government... Um, in order to sort of show the thrusting modernity, the meritocracy of modern Britain, did send Prince Charles to Mexico City in 2015 as well. So I thought I wasn't kind of, um, you know, spoiling the scene any more than, than they were. So um, I want to start just by making an interesting comparison. The very hostile views of the uh, British people that I'm going to talk about contrast with the, on the whole, more varied and often very much more positive views of Americans who went to Mexico in the same period, drawn, as Helen Delpar wrote, by the enormous vogue of things Mexican, people like John Reed, Jack London, John Dos Passos, Catherine Ann Turner, Gruning, Tannenbaum, Carlton Beals, a long, long list of intellectuals, writers, artists who went to Mexico, drawn in part by the new political environment of the revolution, armed revolution, 1910s, institutional revolution, 20s and 30s, coupled with a sort of cultural uh, renaissance attached to indigenismo, the famous uh, mural school. Now, it's not surprising that the Americans would have gone to Mexico. It was close. It was easy to get to. And, of course, if you were a British intellectual who wanted exotic countries and perhaps um, noble savages, what D.H. Lawrence kind of looked for, you had an enormous British empire that you could go and, and look at instead. So it's not surprising more Americans uh, than British went. Um, but what is interesting is that whereas the Americans were in many cases quite positive about both the Mexican culture they saw, also the revolutionary regime, the British commentators were extremely critical. And indeed, when they reflected on their American counterparts, they were again very critical and strongly anti-American. And there is an interesting thread running through what you could call sort of upper or upper middle class British interwar culture that is strongly anti-American. Uh, and indeed, if you know any of the story about uh, Philby and Maclean and Burgess and Blunt, the so-called Cambridge spies who spied for the Soviet Union, one of the main reasons they did that was not because they so much liked 
the Soviet Union, but they hated the Americans, and it was a way of getting at the Americans. So there is a strong anti-American streak. Um, I'm going to conclude on trying to pull out one or two other themes which unite these people as exemplars of sort of interwar British high culture. So, for example, Aldous Huxley takes a swipe at the Americans who, he says, fled the depressed industrial urban US of the 1930s, depression, uh, in search of, quote, a 15th century peasant society in Mexico where they wrote books marred by an injudicious extravagance of admiration for everything Mexican. Evelyn War again scoffs at the American holiday makers who swarm across the border like ants and the expatriate painters and writers who, while entertaining a very sort of folksy notion of Mexico as a country of sunny, indolent peasants, ancient churches and patios, local feasts, I think feasts he means fiestas, he means celebrations, that are spontaneous, traditional, while at the same time expressing, this is the Americans, genuine sympathy with General Cardenas's socialist regime, which war hated. I'll go on and give examples. Now, so the British thought the Americans were rather sort of pathetic and, and naive, now, American opinion about Mexico, intellectuals and others, was, of course, divided. And when it came to the important question of U.S. policy towards revolutionary Mexico, that had a lot of consequences, um, th that intellectual opinion actually mattered. And so the Mexican government in the 20s and 30s were quite smart at cultivating good relations with uh, American writers, journalists, intellectuals like Gruning and Frank Tannenbaum, who became sort of interlocutors between revolutionary Mexico and the US. Now, the same cannot be said for the British, partly because British policy towards Mexico was frankly fairly marginal, and the, the Mexicans knew it, uh, and therefore the cultural commentators, when they went to Mexico, they didn't get the red carpet uh, rolled out for them. The only small equivalent which I encountered was when D.H. Lawrence, who was sort of known to be a novelist of some note, went to Mexico in the 20s. The Mexican foreign ministry told the governor of Oaxaca, a southern state, quote, to do something for the visiting novelist. And indeed, the governor of Oaxaca, an interesting guy called Isaac Ibarra, who was, a, like a lot of the revolutionary leaders, a self-made man, sort of mining worker, mining engineer, came through the ranks, became governor of his home state, quite young, he did at least um, invite D.H. Lawrence to a road-opening ceremony. That's the sort of thing you did to show you know, that, that the revolution was doing things for the people. An invitation which Lawrence rather rudely declined. Forty years later, this is interesting, 40 years later in the 1960s, Ross Palmiter, who wrote an interesting book, well-researched book on Lawrence in Oaxaca, tracked down Ibarra, now quite elderly but entirely lucid, uh, and Ibarra said that he couldn't remember anything about uh, this meeting or this invitation. Indeed, he'd never even heard of D.H. Lawrence or his book, The Plume Serpent, which is a quite useful sort of caveat that some of these books that we know aren't actually that much co common currency uh, in Mexico. Now, it's, I don't think the lack of sort of official red carpets really made much difference. The, the reason the British take on revolutionary Mexico was so much more negative than that of the Americans has other uh, causes, which I'm going to try to discuss as I, I go ahead. Now, of course, it is... Um, I've got some pictures to show you, so I just want to make sure I've not uh, missed the first one yet. can't remember what... Let's have a look see what number one is. I don't want to... Oh, right, in that case, I haven't got to it yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I spoiled one of my sort of minor punchlines, but anyway. Um, 
It's a feature of major revolutions that, apart from, of course, changing the country that they happen in, that's what a revolution does, they attract foreign attention. Now, some of the foreign attention is, is fearful, it's intrusive, it's hostile. We can think of many uh, cases. Some of it is sympathetic and supportive. We can think of Tom Paine going off to being in Philadelphia in the 1770s, Wordsworth going to see the French Revolution in Paris, 1791, George Bernard Shaw endorsing Stalin, or these people here, poignantly topical reference perhaps, we have the very young Fidel there with his cigar, and they're, they're scudding across the waters of the Caribbean, and the two people in front of him, anybody know who those two are? You? Yeah, that's right. So you have Sartre with the glasses, looking a bit worried actually, so clutching <laughs> on for dear life, and Simone de Beauvoir. I sometimes think if that boat had hit a log and they'd all been pitched into the shark-infested waters, how the history of existentialism, feminism and US-Cuban relations would have all been <laughs> radically different. Um, and the Mexican Revolution, like these other revolutions, attracted a lot of both admirers and critics. And the British, as I've said, very much fell into the camp of the critics. Now, it, to start with some of the sort of basic details of what happened, five or perhaps six notable British writers went to Mexico in the 20s and 30s and all of them drew on their Mexican experience to write either novels or travel accounts or in some cases both. Um, I've, I've got a, a list to sort of help guide through this so that's the list, I'll come back to that in a moment. So you have D.H. Lawrence, I've got the individuals down the uh, left side as you can see, how long they were there and the books they wrote. The centre column travel accounts and on the right the novels. There's often considerable overlap between the travel accounts and the novels. So for example Graham Greene's Lawless Roads, a uh, bunch of the, the stuff in that you can see coming out in the, the famous novel, The Power and the Glory, uh, and the same is true to some extent of Aldous Huxley's Beyond the Mexique Bay, and a, chap a few chapters, not a lot, but a part of his book, Eyeless in Gaza. Um, one of these... Uh, I've got the big five I'm going to talk about. One who I'm not going to say much about for various reasons is uh, this guy, W. Somerset Maugham. Uh, in his day, a very successful, very esteemed novelist. Nowadays, his kind of uh, credentials have rather uh, diminished. He spent a month in Mexico in 1924, just long enough to have a row with D.H. Lawrence, who was kind of up for a row at the time, so they, did, they didn't hit it off. And also, long enough, so his biographer says, to arrange uh, meetings, quote, with several young Mexican boys obtained for his personal pleasure. Now, I mean, this is not salacious gossip. This is well attested. When asked by Frida Lawrence, that's Lawrence's wife, of course, if he liked Mexico, Maugham replied, do you want me to admire men in big hats? Boys in short trousers are a different matter, but men in big hats he did not care for. And although Maugham went to Mexico to find material, so we're told, the only very tenuous evidence in his fiction uh, appears in one or two of his short stories. He wrote these kind of proto-James Bond stories. He'd been in British intelligence in the First World War, and he has this about a British agent called Asherton, and in one of the stories called The Hairless Mexican, which is not actually a dog, uh, The Hairless Mexican <laughs> is a sort of proto-James Bond villain, a sort of pelado skinhead type um, who crosses swords with, with our hero. Um, it, it's a pretty tedious, I think, and also this Mexican appears to have very little knowledge about Mexico, or rather Maugham does. For example, he thinks the Mexican national currency is the peseta, 
which of course is the Spanish currency, so it's a bit like talking about the Australian pound. So um, I'm not going to dwell on Somerset more, perhaps just as well. He's not very influential in respect of Mexico, and he's not very important. So we, we come back to the, the big five which I want to talk about. Now, when it comes to assessing these people and talking about them, I have to make clear that I'm a historian of the revolution. I have no claims to being a literary critic or a specialist in fiction, although actually quite a lot of the travel accounts could be uh, reckoned to be fiction as well as the novels, in my view, which I'm, I'm going to argue. Now, the expert consensus of people who do specialise is that The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene and Under the Volcano, the book by Malcolm Lowry, are highly rated. If you look at you know, lists of the 100 greatest novels, that kind of thing, they, they figure, well, certainly the, under the volcano figures there. The Plume Serpent, however, is generally regarded as one of um, Lawrence's not-so-good uh, publications. Now, The Power and the Glory, which is Graham Greene's story about the whiskey priest being persecuted in southern Mexico, is certainly, and, and this is, I'm just going to give a few personal opinions which are worthless, really, uh, is clearly a well-written, well-constructed story. But if, as a Mexicanist, you also read The Lawless Roads, which is supposedly a, an objective travel account, you see an awful lot of overlap. And the fact that The Lawless Roads, as I'm going to say, is so in many ways totally mistaken, misconceived and prejudiced, that somewhat blights the novel as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the novel also is based on, I think, very shaky empirical foundations. Perhaps that doesn't matter. Both um, books depict a hot, desolate, depressing Mexico, which very oddly is populated with dentists. Wherever he goes, he meets dentists. Why this is, I've no idea. For what it's worth, again, I repeat, this is just a personal view, if you want the, the Catholic angst version of Graham Greene, Brighton Rock is a much better novel based on a place that Graham Greene did know, Brighton, south coast of England, gang warfare, horse racing, that kind of thing. Or if you want the sort of tropical ennui and boredom, Our Man in Havana, one of his entertainments, a bit more amusing and lightweight, is actually a better read. But they're just my own views. In a similar way, Under the Volcano which deals with pretty much just one day in the life and death of a British consul in the, clearly the Mexican town of Cuenavaca, it, it, also in 1938, um, is a book which nowadays has a considerable reputation and acclaim. In fact, it, it, I think it was always thus in Mexico. The first time I ever heard of this book was a Mexican asking me had I read it, and I said no, and he was shocked that I hadn't. Uh, it now actually figures, I think, in the, the British literary canon much more. It is nevertheless quite hard going, um, although I have to admit, having sort of forced myself to read it, as you get towards the end, it really gathers steam and it has a very powerful, if very grim, conclusion. Now, this is also pretty desperate and desolate stuff. It's the story of this sort of washed-up British consul who is an alcoholic, and it seems to me that actually his story, which is very much... Malcolm Lowry's own story, he was also uh, an alcoholic with a, a failing marriage. Uh, alcoholics probably are not actually very interesting. Stephen Spender, reputable critic, writes about this book, quote, by the time we finish this novel, we know how a drunk thinks and feels, walks, lies down. We experience not only the befuddlement of drinking, but also its moments of translucent clairvoyance. This seems a fairly odd thing to say, and indeed even a slightly irresponsible thing to say. Um, Lowry certainly gives very chilling descriptions of delirium tremens, alcohol-induced hallucinations. There is not much by way of translucent clairvoyance. I mean, it is a very grim, nasty story of a guy going downhill and eventually being killed, uh, not least, and, and his relationships all failing. 
And equally, his significant others, uh, Yvonne, his wife in the story, who's based on Lowry's first wife, uh, Jan Gabriel, is someone, I think, sort of straight out of what we call a, the home counties tennis club set, um, if you home counties sort of around uh, London. Uh, and his half-brother, Hugh, the other sort of third person in the plot, is an endlessly sort of fantasizing, guitar-plucking leftist hippie. You can't call him a hippie, but the sort of hippie avant la lettre, if you like. And indeed, in true hippie fashion, Hugh has been going on these sort of glo global rambles, quote, receiving assistance from the very people he mysteriously imagines himself to be running away from. That also re relates to Lowry himself, because he was on a sort of nomadic and very disorganized lifestyle, uh, but being funded by his father, who was a rich businessman back in Liverpool. The dialogue between the principal three in this story involves a lot of rather sort of childish wordplay and much of it's conducted in the kind of jargon of the British bourgeoisie of the time like won't be a jiffy, I'm in a jolly frightful mess, a, tup a, a touch of the gujiers, I forget, I looked up what gujiers meant, I've forgotten now what it is, old thingamy tight, this, this, this kind of thing. The supreme exponent of this actually is a passing British motorist. Now why you get a passing British motorist in the middle of Cuernavaca is rather surprising, but he's like Bertie Worcester on wheels, if you know Bertie Worcester. A merry red face, a Trinity College tie, who finds the consul lying dead drunk in the gutter, and his concerned response for the guy when he finds he's a fellow Anglo is bad show, old man, deuce nice pub. And he bids farewell saying bung ho. He doesn't quite say toodle pip, but he says bung ho. Now my point is not that you know, British people never spoke like that. They, they, they probably did. But that the people who speak like this, unless it's P.G. Woodhouse, in which case it's kind of light relief and quite amusing, are actually not very interesting. And they are totally irrelevant to the story of Mexico in, in the 1930s. Now, it's true to pick out some of the more positive aspects of the novel, the way they speak to me as someone who just happens to know Mexico. Some of the descriptions of place, particularly the volcanoes which give the book its name, Ixtaxahuatl and Popocatapetl, uh, the description of the town of Cuernavaca, where the action mostly takes place, is both evocative and perceptive. Uh, Lowry did know Mexico pretty well. He'd spent two years there, which is actually as much as all the others put together. So in many ways, he's much more rooted in Mexico than any of the others. Some of them just came for about three or four weeks and, and then left. And his references to the sort of daily sights and scenes are not kind of just recycled from research notebooks. You can tell he sort of knows what he's talking about, and you know, to use the cliche, they ring true. There are still a few oddities. I, mean, I won't go into the details, probably not very interesting. Um, there are times when you think, is this really for, for real? For all the sort of poetical colour and the, the strong descriptions of place, the book is extraordinarily dense. I mean, I, I found it quite hard going. I don't know, has anybody read Under the Volcano here? I don't know what your reaction was. I mean, I had to really push myself to get through. It quickens up uh, when you get more towards the end. Um, Endless details, lots of literary, poetical uh, references. Again, I'm going to skip them for want of time. Uh, for me, looking and reading the book in part to see if it tells us much about Mexico, there isn't very much. It does touch on Mexican politics. It talks about a sort of vague fascist movement. Again, it, that doesn't really ring true at all. The description of the local fascists, who are the people who finally kill the consul, um, it, it doesn't strike me as at all uh, convincing. Uh, 
so my conclusion on that book, and it's backed up by one or two of the literary critics who sort of know about these things, is that essentially this is a story based on Lowry's own personal demons, his own personal life story. It could have been set in almost anywhere. It happens to be set in Mexico, but it doesn't really engage much with Mexico or, or tell us much. Well, now that, in a sense, doesn't matter. It's a novel, so my criticism, in a sense, is, is irrelevant. Lawrence's Plume Serpent, I'm going to get rid of a couple of the novels first and then move on to the travel accounts. Lawrence's Plume Serpent is, as one critic put it, one of the silliest stories in recent literature. Um, somebody else called it a tremendous volcano of a failure. Everybody reaches for the volcano metaphor. Uh, as you may know, it charts the involvement of 41, a 40-year-old Irish widow, who is a kind of female incarnation of Lawrence in some ways, in a rising politico-religious Mexican cult in Mexico in the 1920s, the cult of Quetzalcoatl, the plume serpent. It is again, I mean, I guess you either probably like, it's like Marmite or Vegemite, you either like it or you don't, and um, I find Lawrence's style, frankly, quite hard going as well. Uh, very long rambling sentences, constant repetitions, and a lots of excursions into the rather sort of murky world of Lawrence's own mysticism. Uh, the experts agree this is not one of his best, so I mean, I'm reassured that it's not just my totally amateur opinion. As in the case of the uh, other novels, it perhaps doesn't really matter whether the, the context of the story matters very much, but the fact is the, the story of the cult of the plume serpent which Lawrence describes bears virtually no relation to Mexican reality in the 1920s. Now, does that matter? I'm not a literary critic. I don't know how much a novel needs to show some tenuous relation to, to the reality it describes. If Dickens had Sidney Carlton going off to Paris in Tale of Two Cities in a train rather than a horse-drawn carriage, would that sort of impair the quality of the book? Well, I think it might a bit. There's only so much so-called willing suspension disbelief a reader can maintain. So if you know about Mexico and the context, it, it's actually quite difficult to swallow this. Now, I have very kind of briskly, no doubt rather unfairly, dismissed the novels. I now want to turn, more importantly, to the travel accounts, which it might be hoped will shed light on Mexico in this interesting period as the revolution consolidated. After all, travel accounts, and I'm defining them for the moment quite broadly, can be very useful. H.G. Ward, who was the first Mexi uh, British uh, representative in independent Mexico in the 1820s, wrote an extremely good compendious study of the Mexico that he witnessed, kind of travel account in a way. Fanny Calderón de la Barca, Irish uh, wife of the Spanish minister in the 1840s, also wrote very interesting personal memoirs. So foreigners who go to Mexico can come up with some interesting things that tell us as historians useful uh, informations. Um, I'm going to, in looking at the four main culprits here, looking first at War, Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene, even though chronologically they come later. Uh, their accounts are the most substantial. The, the two books they wrote, um, The Lawless Roads and Evelyn Waugh's Robbery Under Law, it has two titles, one in the UK, one in the US. They are substantial books of about 200 and 250 pages. They also happen to be exactly contemporary. They, these writers were both in Mexico at the same time in uh, 1938, actually about the time of the big oil expropriation. They also shared a number of common opinions and prejudices. I'll deal with them first, then I'm going to move on to what I would see as somewhat more matizado, nuanced, and in some ways slightly more positive versions of D.H. Lawrence and Huxley, who had actually arrived a bit earlier. 
Now, regarding the, the revolution, that's to say the social political movement which blew up with the big civil war of the 1910s and then became a functioning regime in the 20s and 30s, all the writers, with the exception of Huxley, are extremely critical. Evelyn Waugh himself was sponsored by the Cowdery family to go to Mexico and write the book. Now, the Cowdery family were the heirs of Lord Cowdery, who had been one of the great pioneers of the Mexican oil industry under Porfirio Diaz in the 1900s. Cowdery had sold his big company, the Mexican Eagle Company, to Royal Dutch Shell in 1918. But the Cowdery's, Lord Cowdery died, but then his, his heirs and his family still had uh, interest, had a stake in that. And so the oil expropriation of March 1938, when President Cardenas took over the big Anglo-American oil companies, including Royal Dutch Shell, uh, was not to their liking. And so, in a sense, Evelyn War, War as an as a effective sort of journalist, novelist, writer, polemicist, was asked to go and report on this. Uh, he was therefore not surprisingly hostile. He parades his conservative and Catholic values. Both uh, War and Green were Catholic. And War not only criticizes the revolution, but the whole course of Mexican history, which for him is a story of feckless disorganization and failure ever since Mexico left Spanish control with independence in 1821. The, the Spanish colony has many redeeming virtues, but since that time, Mexico goes off the rails. This, he announces on page one, is a political book uh, which he calls Notes on Anarchy. I was a conservative when I went to Mexico, he declares, and everything I saw there strengthened my opinion. He goes on, uh, politics, which everywhere is destructive, here has dried the place up, frozen it, cracked and powdered it to dust. I mean, this is not an argument, this is a kind of assertion. And Mexico, he says, has fallen into the hands of a destructive political clique. The armed revolution, out of which this new regime had recently sprung, involved, war goes on, a bunch of bandit armies led by Villa and Zapata, Via being, he says, an intolerable blackguard capable of every conceivable public and private atrocity. So immediately the two kind of great popular leaders of the Mexican Revolution are just written off as bandits. Of course, a lot of uh, European observers said that at the time. It was not new to regard them as bandits. It was the standard dis way of dismissing uh, popular revolutionary leaders. Uh, but he doesn't stop uh, with that. Sorry, that was the power and the glory. I should have showed you that picture earlier, and that was Malcolm Larry. I got a bit behind with my pictures, uh, and that was the plume serpent. Apologies for getting a bit behind with this. And that's Evelyn War, who I'm now talking about, who kind of looks the part as the rather sort of dyspeptic conservative figure. Um, uh, but apart from damning, say, Villa Zapata, he even takes shots at people like Salvador Alvarado. Now, he... He has this sort of rather bookish look. He was a rather sort of self-educated, middle-class fellow, a pharmacist, joined the revolution in Sonora, where he came from, was sent down to govern Yucatan in 1915, inaugurates a very enlightened, perhaps slightly optimistic regime in Yucatan involving uh, feminist reform, land reform, trying to uplift the Maya Indians, even the Boy Scouts. He brought them in. He thought the Boy Scouts was a good movement to try and sort of modernize Mexico. Salvador Alvarado, according to Evelyn War, quote, is a hooligan like the gangster bosses of Chicago in the 1920s. Now, one wonders where War gets this completely weird idea from. My guess is he got it from the guys he was drinking with in the Ritz bar bar of the Ritz Hotel in Mexico City, which is where he stayed when he was there, where he says in, in the account, uh, where he hung out with some really good company, um, 
I'll, I'll come back to that reference again. And the point about the people in the Ritz bar is a lot of them, I think, and there is evidence for this in, in War's own writing, were expropriated landlords, members of the old elite who had sort of fallen on hard times because of the revolution. So not surprisingly, War is picking up this extremely sort of elitist reactionary view of what the revolution was all about. Uh, he also typically gives vent to a sort of anti-American line as well. Uh, he argues that the Americans have always support, supported uh, subversive movements in Mexico, Benito Juarez in the 19th century, the revolution in the early 20th. He then takes a shot at the American ambassador of the late 1920s, Dwight Morrow, who he says was unique among not only his own countrymen, the Americans, but all humankind in being able to display personal affection for President Calles, who was the dominant president in the 1920s. War, who was not exactly a large man himself, then comments obliquely on Dwight Morrow's diminutive stature. The average Mexican, he says, was about Morrow's height, so he, Morrow, was able to face the camera with his arms on people's shoulders without looking particularly foolish. In doing this, what he's doing, he's taking a swipe at someone who was probably one of the most successful, adroit uh, U.S. ambassadors in Mexico, someone who really brokered a much better modus vivendi between revolutionary Mexico and the U.S. Uh, there are other things he says about American policy which, again, are completely off the wall. President Cardenas, the radical reformer who is president when war is in Mexico, is, he concedes, sincere, disinterested, but mischievous, but his policy is, he says, insane. Radical policies regarding land, oil, just expropriated, socialist education, the trade unions. As a result of all this, war complains, strikes have become endemic, and the oil workers in particular, and it was an oil workers' strike that precipitated the expropriation of the companies, he says the oil workers' demands were preposterous. They had high wages anyway, which they wasted, quote, on loutish enjoyments, including saloons and houses of prostitution. Meanwhile, the National University is in chaos, a merciless atheism is being forced on a God-fearing people, and land reform is a top-down imposition which involves foisting land on feckless peons who can't work it and would prefer to live in squalor anyway. It's a bit like the argument that if you give the British poor council houses with baths for the first time, they'll use the baths to put their coal in. Uh, the peons don't really want any sort of uplifting. They're much happier living on the haciendas. Uh, and from this sort of political rant, he's extremely hostile to the government, and of course he's in some ways speaking for the oil interests, he branches out into bigger denunciations. Mexico's a country, he says, where any hooligan can get into power. Its leaders are typically squat, swarthy, passionate, intolerant, vain men who will steal, promise, give lavishly, murder their friends, buy off their enemies, nurse a grudge, forget a kindness sometimes grossly sacrilegious, sometimes heroically pious. And then he comes to the sort of explanatory punchline. What explains this? Mexico, he says, is a mixture of Aztec and Castilian inextricably confounded together. So the root of Mexico's many congenital problems are the fact it's a mix of this, this, this incompatible racial mix. It's... Uh, the, the, the Spaniards, the Castilians, and the Aztecs. So what he does, he takes Vasconcelos' notion of the cosmic race, where Vasconcelos postulated this was a superior hybrid, and he says it's the lowest of the low. Now, quite a lot of this, I say, is not particularly new. It's fairly standard sort of reactionary comment. Uh, you can hear a lot of it, including sometimes from Mexicans themselves, in the 1920s and 30s. 
War came with pretty much preconceived ideas, and as I mentioned, he tended to hobnob in the Ritz bar and elsewhere with the deposed landed elite, who clearly fed him some of their own ideas and prejudices. And indeed, when War at one point lists the good times he had in Mexico, as you'd expect, it's a pretty short list, uh, it includes a magnificent bottle of claret that I drank in Mexico City in w- with the good company which I enjoyed in the Ritz bar. Uh, he actually spent most of his time there. He made one trip to Veracruz. Apart from that, he just sat in Mexico City, particularly in the Ritz bar and a few other bars. So he actually had quite a good time. I think he quite enjoyed himself. The other thing that war does, which is significant, is he puts Mexico into an international scene as many Mexicans did in the 30s. The Spanish Civil War had a big impact in Mexico. He says that and he's correct. Uh, He points out, though, his way of pointing out that the Spanish Civil War is a big item in Mexico is to point out that the Mexicans are now drinking a sweet, heady cocktail in sale on all the best bars called a Franco. I must say, I didn't know about that. I don't know what a Franco contained. Um... And he does also point out one of the reasons that the Mexicans are interested in the Spanish Civil War is that there are many parallels between the course of the Mexican Revolution and the Spanish uh, Revolution. So for a moment he actually picks on something quite important but he is quite incapable of explaining why this should be. Now moving on quickly, uh, I'm going to get now to Graham Greene who you see there. Whereas war was well known as a conservative and as he says, he became more conservative by virtue of going to Mexico, and he was bound to dislike Mexico's regime, it's less obvious that Graham Greene should have been so hostile. Greene was certainly not a conservative. He flirted briefly with the Communist Party. He later hobnobbed with Latin American leftists like Fidel Castro and Omar Torrijos, and he wrote a a slightly adulatory book describing his relations with the Panamanian radical president-slash-dictator, not sure what label you correctly use. However, like Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene was also a Catholic. Indeed, both were converts to Catholicism. And John Carey, in a very interesting and I think persuasive book called The Intellectuals and the Masses, which deals with these and other people in Britain in the interwar period, he argues that Catholic uh, conversion for these people conferred a kind of elite status, that of a persecuted nobility in war's case. Also, he says, an attractive haven from the dowdy reality of mass society and suburban mediocrity. And that's the theme I'm going to come back to in conclusion. Now, Green's mission to Mexico also had a sponsor, which was the Catholic Church, which wanted and therefore got a diatribe against Mexican anti-clericalism. So, Green's book, Lawless Roads, describes uh, anti-clerical persecution, and we can see very clearly how the plot of the power and the glory is transposed uh, from that. The church in Mexico, Green says, is facing the fiercest persecution of religion anywhere since the reign of Elizabeth I which is historically completely wrong anyway, because actually, uh, yeah, Elizabeth I did persecute religious minorities a bit, but it was nothing compared to what was going on, say, in Europe in the Thirty Years' War. Furthermore, even Mexican anti-clericalism, which did exist and was quite uh, brutal at times, was not nearly as bad in terms of sheer numbers uh, as uh, Spanish Republican anti-clericalism, the number of priests that were killed and executed and so on, is, it doesn't compare with what happened in Spain in 1936. And indeed, in a later postscript, to a later edition, Green is slightly apologetic, saying that uh, if, if it seems, looking back from the early 70s, that I concentrated too much on the question of anti-clericalism, it was because I was commissioned to write a book on the religious uh, situation, uh, not about folklore or the paintings of Diego Rivera. 
That said, he does talk about folklore and Diego Rivera, whose work he says is unbearably sentimental. So his critique of Mexico is not just about anti-clericalism, it's about a lot of other things. The crucial thing about Green is that he arrived too late. By 1938, when he got there, both uh, Calles, the preceding big president who was fiercely anti-clerical, had given way to Cardenas, who was much less so, and the leading sort of regional anti-clerical, this guy, Tomas Garrido Canabal, who was the boss of Tabasco, the southern state in which uh, the, the power and the glory is set, and indeed where Green went to sort of do the research and which figures in the travel account as well, Garrido Canabal had been exiled by Cardenas three years earlier. So by the time Green got to Mexico, the worst of the anti-clerical persecution was long over. Indeed, churches were reopening and a sort of modus vivendi was being established between church and state. It's interesting to note, as Green crosses into Mexico uh, early in, 19, in 1938, he, he's travelling on a Budget. I think he had much less money than Evelyn War. He crosses the border from uh, Laredo into Nuevo Laredo. And it's not a very happy introduction to this new country. He's, he writes, this was Mexico, that was the United States. The only difference was dirt and darkness. There weren't so many street lights in Mexico. He goes to his hotel in Nuevo Laredo. He notes, there was a large cockroach dead on the floor of my room and a sour smell coming from the water closet. Disconsolate, uh, he recalls, I tried to read myself to sleep with Barchester Towers. There you are, a nice cosy Trollopian uh, <laughs> novel. And in a way, these first hours in Mexico set the scene for what's going to happen. Mexico is dark, dark, dirty, it has smells, all sorts of nasty wildlife. You keep meeting cockroaches, rats, vultures, mosquitoes, and sort of rather vain attempts by poor old Green to find solace in cosy English novels. Uh, now, regarding his principal mission, finding the persecution of the church, he has a real problem, because I said the, the worst of it was all finished. Um, and so, in a way, he was kind of beating a dead horse, or you could, I suppose, say a dead mule, because it's very sight for his travels through the wilds of Chiapas when he's riding on the back of the mule and sort of everything goes wrong. That trek, when he finally goes down to southern Mexico, involves him leaving Mexico City. He doesn't sit around in the Ritz bar having a nice time as War did. He has to go down to Veracruz. He gets on a flat-bottomed boat, sails across a torrid, unpleasant trip uh, across the Gulf to Tabasco, then, after a lot of toing and froing, he finally does his mule ride up into the highlands of uh, Chiapas. He's a lot of delays and hold-ups. He's got dysentery, fever, saddle sores, eye strain, because he's lost his glasses. He finally gets to San Cristobal, which he's built up into a kind of Jerusalem at the end of the trip. And that's another big disappointment. And along the way, he keeps moaning about, oh, I wish I was back in England. Uh, he's, he's already finished Anthony Trollope. He's now reading William Cobbett's Rural Rides. And they're the only two books he's got. So when he's finished them, he's got nothing else to read. So he bewails his lot. And you might feel some sympathy for him. At least he's quite intrepid. He's doing this on a shoestring. He's being quite resourceful. But he sets out really ill-equipped. And he doesn't speak any Spanish. And that's an interesting thing that kind of is relevant for a number of these people. Um, he says that uh, he has to depend on interpreters or Mexicans who know English. He, he talks of one Mexican who does some translation for him in San Cristobal. He says this Mexican would answer yes to all questions he didn't understand, much as, <laughs> much as I did in Spanish. <laughs> now, this seems a very risky conversational strategy to me. Um, and you can tell that 
Green does put a smatter of, of, of Spanish words in the text, many of which he gets wrong. He clearly doesn't command the language. Um, most of the other English... Uh, Lowry, I think, did have reasonable Spanish. He'd been there for much longer. Uh, none of the others... Um, Lawrence is interesting. Um, Lawrence, as one biographer put it, um, Lawrence's Spanish was mostly Italian because he spent quite a lot of time <laughs> in Italian, uh, which seems to me something that might work in Argentina or Buenos Aires, but not, not in Mexico. So it's quite important. None of these people, except perhaps Lowry, really had a command of the language. Now, in Green's eyes, Mexicans, Mexico's political class is anti-clerical and therefore bad. Uh, he... I'm going to have to skip a few because I'm going to, my time is going to get a bit short. He, like war, regards the Mexico of Cardenas to be socialist, totalitarian. The only person he has a good word for amongst the political elite is this guy, Saturnino Cedillo, who was uh, the regional boss, another lot of regional bosses at the time in the state of San Luis Potosí. Um, Green likes Cedillo, who he visited... And indeed, the one, I think, really interesting original bit of the book is where he describes meeting Cedillo. And Cedillo had this kind of manor house equipped with a bowling alley and a, a personal cinema, and he had all these retainers and supporters all around. He was a typical sort of Mexican cacique, local boss. Uh, coming to the end of his career, he, in fact, rebelled against Cardenas a year later and was killed. So he, he's a kind of washed-up relic of the old popular uh, revolution. The reason Green likes him is that he was very soft on the Catholic Church. One or two state governors were careful to kind of placate the church, particularly in San Luis, which was a somewhat more Catholic uh, state. And so Green puts in a good word for him. Interestingly, he again has to sort of reach for a strange English metaphor. He, he compares him to Mr. Brock the Badger, from Beatrix Potter. Um, that, that seems a very strange metaphor to pursue. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I must move on. Um, like War, Green talks about the revolutionary leadership as being basically a, a bunch of pistoleros, puffy pistoleros, he calls them gunmen, uh, bosses who spend all their time lounging around. Uh, I've got a few nice quotes, but I need to skip for want of time. Now, I'm going to come back in conclusion to the question of politics. But the interesting thing is that Green's criticism of Mexico is not just about politics. It seems to include almost every aspect of Mexican life. The food, the drink, tequila, he says, is an inferior schnapps. Uh, national, national heroes, again, Zapata led a useless uprising. Well, actually it didn't. I mean, there's no question that Zapata actually achieved quite a lot of results, particularly in, in Morelos. Uh, major national landmarks uh, take the case of the... Mayan site of Palenque. Now that's just about on Green's itinerary through southern Mexico. He says, for Palenque I felt only the faintest curiosity. But he thinks, well, I probably ought to go. So he goes and he says, he's very disappointed, he says, it consists mostly of dark, cool little rooms like lavatories. He says, there is the occasional temple or palace, but with no more importance than a ruined stone farmhouse in the Oxfordshire countryside. So again, you get the comparison with Britain and a sort of dismissal of what is you know, clearly one of the jewels in Mexico's pre-Columbian architectural past. Uh, Green's aversion to almost everything Mexican is evident in the, what I would call the two H words which litter the text, hate or hatred and hideous. Hatred, uh, he's talking about the Mexicans, he's only arrived in Mexico about two weeks early. He says, uh, I've never been in a country where you are more aware all the time of hate. Uh, hate tracks the pace of exchange rate, he says, pretty much. After the oil expropriation, the drop in the exchange rate, of course, has increased the level of hate. Directed, he thinks, against him. I'm not sure that that's true. Um, 
En route to Palenque, the site clinging to the pommel of his rather recalcitrant mule, Green confesses, I began to hate my dapper guide with his rather caddish white riding breeches. He hates the mule that's carrying him. He meets a mestizo at a guest house the next stop. He said, I grew to loathe this fellow resident, a mestizo with curly sideburns and two yellow fangs. The mestizo is important because he becomes a key character in the power of the glory who betrays the priest. So again, you have the transposition from the travel account to the novel. Afflicted with dysentery, Green now begins to fear that his stay in Mexico may be prolonged. He may have to go into hospital, which means, quote, no escape for several weeks from this country which I now hate. I admit an almost pathological hatred I begin to feel for Mexico. Finally, uh, when he's last on his way home, he's going from Oaxaca to Puebla on the uh, train prior to, I think, getting the, the boat. One problem is he's he's finished reading Trollope and Cobbett. He's got nothing more to read. So he decides, I will jot down, quote, random thoughts of a bored man. And he he looks around and he begins, how one begins to hate these people. He lists the objects of his hatred. An old lady in black blowing her nose. A middle-class child in black velvet shorts. Somerset Moore might have approved, people who never seem to help each other in small ways, the hideous inexpressiveness of brown eyes. So it's a question of roll on England, books, brown eyes, and nice, polite, helpful people uh, straight out of Barchester Towers. The word hideous crops up all the time. I've got a long list of all the things that are hideous. I won't inflict that on you as well, but it is a long list. Uh, Apart from showing a rather kind of... uh, recurrent uh, semantic tick to keep using the same words Um, it's clear I think that Green's approach to Mexico in general reflects the fact he had a seriously bad time war although he's very critical uh, actually I say quite enjoyed so it's a lighter touch I mean you can read read war without thinking this is sort of horrible but but in the case of uh, Green it's different now moving on to the last two I can deal with in rather quicker uh, style. I come to uh, Aldous Huxley on the left with the glasses and D.H. Lawrence. They were in fact friends and indeed uh, Huxley edited uh, Lawrence's letters uh, after he was dead. Now it is a bit of a relief to be honest to turn to these two. I'm not saying their works brilliant captures all sorts of things but it's it's a bit more interesting and a bit more kind of uh, moderate. Uh, Lawrence's account of his year in Mexico, he actually made three trips that it adds up to about a year, um, when it sticks to Mexico and describing what he does there and doesn't get bogged down in all sorts of turgid stuff about the, you know, the Indian's universal mind, the Indian way of consciousness, the sort of mystical stuff, it's actually quite readable and in places it even tells you a bit about 1920s Mexico. He was there in 1924, so he's the first of the, the, the series actually. Um, he did at least hobnob a bit. He mixed with ordinary Mexicans, particularly the Indian Mosso, the boy Rosalino, who kind of guides him around. And he seems, or he gives the impression he quite enjoys some of this, and he describes them trekking through the countryside and trying to buy a, a fruit and so on. It's quite a slight uh, account. I mean, Mornings in Mexico is only about 80 pages. And in fact, halfway through his Mexican reminiscences, you suddenly discover we've gone back to New Mexico, which is where he'd been before. And in describing something about mu- uh, Indian music, Indian dance, he just switches back to the Pueblos and starts telling us all about them Again, so there's, there's no sense that you know, the, the authorial pilots have suddenly flown us a thousand miles north 
without telling us. The justification, which he makes clear, is that Indians are pretty much the same from New Mexico all the way down to Patagonia. They all belong to this same slightly sort of mystical uh, culture. Now, like other, the other British writers I've mentioned, Lawrence also had an agenda not to score political points, but rather to search for the elusive soul of primitive people who would be an alternative for the rather jaded world of urban industrial uh, Europe. He also came, of course, because he was beginning to suffer from TB. He was looking for a healthier place. He also had this sort of constant search. If you read the letters of, of D.H. Lawrence, and of course he'd been to Australia not long before this, and in each case he's kind of looking for the, the ultimate place where he wants to settle and set up a kind of writer's commune where he'd invite his friends and they all get together and they'll write and comment. And everywhere he goes, he goes with high hopes, and within a short space of time he is disillusioned about where he's gone. And his life my reading of it is a series of attempts which are then in the end uh, fruitless so to put it a bit crudely it's rather like I've just got one other picture here of um, this is uh, Lawrence in Monte Alban I put it in partly to, because we had Palenque earlier Lawrence did at least go to these places like Monte Alban so did Aldous Huxley I'll come back to Huxley in a moment um, so he, he's coming to Mexico in part to try and find the kind of the noble savage, an alternative to soulless mechanical modernity back in Europe. Now, I don't think, again, he was in any way successful by his own criteria. Uh, a lot of the accounts by people who met him say that during his time in Mexico, particularly when his wife Frida had gone back to Europe, he is in a state of fear, anxiety, neuroticism. Carlton Beals, the radical American who knew Lawrence, said, he saw, I saw Lawrence frequently. And he recalls at bottom, Lawrence was terribly afraid of Mexico. He always saw some secret menace in it. Now, there were reasons perhaps occasionally to be justifiably a bit worried. Things were going on in Mexico in the 1920s when Lawrence was there. But it does seem that this was a rather an, an overreaction. Lawrence does, however, have some positive things to say about Mexicans. Indians, makes a change from war and green. Uh, he talks about their rich physique, their beautiful suave, rich skins. Uh, he notes also the bold male stare of most of the Indians. So they're not just kind of submissive paeans or insect-like Indians which war and green talk about. But consistency is not really his strong point. Uh, accounts suggest in his day-to-day -day relations with Indians in, the real, in real life he was often quite brusque and ill-tempered and indeed in his letters, his private correspondence he talks sometimes about these queer little savages. Well, you have to recognise that most Europeans talk like that. This is not unusual. So he is quite um, mixed in his um, way of talking. Uh, Rosalino, the mozo, the, the young boy who's guiding him round, he is, Lawrence tells us, eager and helpful one day, but then descends into reptilian gloom. It's the Indian gloom which settles on them like a black marsh fog. Uh, we get more hate. Rosalino really hated us. He gave off a black stream of hate. It's the Indian stupor of gloom and hate, and so on and on it goes. Another trope that's repeated all the time or comment is about eyes, Mexican reptilian eyes, obsidian eyes, black eyes, inscrutable eyes. I won't inflict any more of that uh, in order to try and get towards my conclusion. Now, when he's not sort of getting too... Uh, immersed in the rather murky ethnic and racial stereotyping, Lawrence does at least manage a few useful observations. I mean, he's quite observant and open to things that he sees, uh, much more than either war or green were. were. 
For example, he gives a nice little brief portrait of the Oaxacan Serranos. Now, the Serranos are the people who live up in the mountains, a rather distinct uh, community. They are, he calls them, wild hillmen with their little hats of conical black felt, their wild staring eyes. Well, you've got to get the, the wild staring eyes bit. And he talks a bit about them. He grasps also the importance of localism. Oaxaca in particular is a state with lots of little tiny municipios and pueblos. He notes how the Indians have a heavy, intense attachment to their villages, something that lots of historians and anthropologists would confirm. And he produces one nice little vignette, which sounds very authentic, about another Mexican of the lower class, Aurelio, a slightly older man, who was violently taken by the Leva, that's the press gang, the military press gang at the time of the recent De La Huerta revolt in 1923, uh, and he recounts Aurelio's um, story, uh, and Lawrence concludes this, and the story, again, you know, rings true, it sounds pretty convincing, and it ends with Lawrence declaring, not to be caught, not to be caught. This must have been the prevailing motive of Indian-Mexican life since long before Moctezuma marched his prisoners to sacrifice. Well, this was kind of pure guesswork, and it's a bit kind of over the top. But one thing it does give, which is, I think, quite useful, it offers a contrast to the notion you get in a lot of accounts of Mexico that all Mexican men are rabid machos who want to grab a gun and go off as they say, ira la bola, so join the fray, start shooting. So he actually captures the fact that Indians did not want to be forcibly conscripted into the army and that many of them ran away to avoid that. And that, again, is something that a lot of historical anthropological research has confirmed. Right, finally, I'm going to move rapidly on and touch on Huxley, and then I'll reach a conclusion. So there we have the rather sort of brooding uh, intellectual Aldous Huxley. Now, his account uh, of Mexico, written in the early 30s, a little bit later, is also brief. It's about 50 pages. Uh, it comes in a book, Beyond the Mexique Bay, which takes him through the Caribbean, Central America, interesting stuff about Guatemala, and then into Mexico. He's only in Mexico for about a month. It is a much more cerebral, academic sort of book than the others. This, after all, was the rational, scientific, sociological Huxley following the family tradition. His grandfather was uh, Thomas Huxley, who was Darwin's bulldog, the collaborator, and biologist, and zoologist, and so on. Um, and it's before Huxley uh, sort of took his turn towards more kind of mystical use of mescal, which we see in Brave New World and later work when he'd moved uh, to the US. Indeed, some people suggest his Mexican experiences may have pushed him in that direction. I don't know if, if that's true or not. Huxley's account, as I say, is quite analytical. He tells us exactly where he goes, how he gets there, pretty hard travelling, landing amongst, amid the surf at Puerto Angel on the Pacific coast, bouncing along on a mule that's too small so his feet practically touch the ground. So, but it, it's actually not really, you don't get the sense that this is a terrible Calvary in the way that Green's travels are. Huxley's opinions about Mexico are mixed, but even when they're negative, they are at least reasoned and considered. They're not just the product of some kind of hyper-racist European superiority. He admits he doesn't much like Mexico City. He says, I don't like the altitude, the dust, the aridity. I've never felt so thoroughly bad-tempered as the week we spent in Mexico City. He is very rude about Mexican women, particularly at the Miss Etla beauty contest. This beauty contest were becoming quite fashionable in Mexico at the time, and they had the Miss Etla. Etla's a sort of small town in Oaxaca. What he says about that doesn't bear repeating. On the other hand, 
He applauds the fact he has some quite good meals, even up in the high Sierra, at the very top of the Sierra, good meal in a, with, a, with a peasant family. He notes that travelling in Mexico is actually quite safe, which is a complete rebuttal of most of what the others say, or what people say nowadays. He commends the fine and stately city of Oaxaca, particularly he calls the gorgeous church of Santo Domingo, so he recognises the colonial inheritance, and he considers Monte Alban, which we briefly saw a picture of, to be incomparably magnificent. So it's very different from Green talking about uh, Palenque. He also recognises, though he has some quite harsh words to say about Mexican artisanry, he praises some of the Oaxacan artefacts, and his evaluation of the Mexican muralists, Rivera and others, about whom Green is, is really quite rude and dismissive, uh, Huxley is much more uh, balanced. He actually recognised that probably Orozco is the, the most interesting and the one whose work is most significant, in which respect perhaps he was right. So it's a balance, and it seems to me that um, there is certainly both good and bad in the way he sees Mexico. He also, very importantly, and again almost uniquely, he links his view of Mexico to much wider uh, contemporary and global trends. Now, Evelyn Waugh does that, particularly by... Um, sort of slotting Mexico into his view of the, the goodies and the baddies, the right, the left, the communists versus the Catholics. Huxley is, is a bit different. He reports, for example, on the big coffee fincas, the big coffee estates of Oaxaca. Uh, he analyzes the logic of coffee production in the region, an economic perspective that you don't get in any of these other accounts. He notes how the cheap, hot stimulants, which Americans and Europeans have come to expect at a cheap price, uh, he notes the consequences, quote, our afternoon tea, our after dinner coffee depend on the existence of a huge reserve of sweated coloured labour. And he's drawing the parallel not just with Mexico, but also, of course, in the African and Indian uh, colonies. So in a sense, we, he's talking about globalisation and commodity chains uh, before we started using those terms. And he recognised, in this case, the Indians, or what he calls coloured people, figure as producers and exploited producers, not as sort of just folkloric curiosities or exotic savages. He also comments on certain typical features of Mexican life, which other people seem to have missed the traditional love of fireworks, the ubiquity of firearms, absolutely true. One legacy of the Mexican Revolution is that everybody had guns and they were used quite frequently, so often quite violent personal vendettas, and the growing incidence of modern technology, which is something, of course, that Lawrence really didn't want to see. So he comments on the fact that the so-called Fortito, the little Ford, is beginning to become a, an item of transport uh, throughout much of uh, Mexico. He talks about sewing machines being used. There's a very interesting study recently by an American economic historian about sewing machines coming into Mexico. It's quite a big item. It affects uh, ha household life quite a lot. And about the rise of the so-called flapper girl. So here you have, it's slightly blurred, the traditional Mexican woman at the top being abused by the sort of ugly, macho Mexican male. And then by 1919, you get the flapper with the short bobbed hair and the short skirt who is turning the tables on the Mexican macho. And Huxley again comments on the way in which women in Mexico are changing. Last of all, uh, Huxley has a sort of big question which he asks, which is quite interesting. And the question is, as Mexico you like modernises, the Fords come in, factories are built, flappers replace traditional women. 
If Mexico becomes modern, urban, industrial, will it lose its folkloric soul? Will some of the things that we as foreigners uh, admire about Mexico, whether it's uh, folklore or dance or music or ceramics, will that disappear? It's the same argument which a, an American economist, Stuart Chase, uh, was writing about, a book which came out at the same time called Mexico, A Study of the Two Americas, can modernization, industrialization prove compatible with traditional Mexican uh, art and culture? And indeed, Huxley engages in a, an open debate in the, the pages with uh, Stuart Chase. Now, he doesn't really uh, arrive at a very clear uh, argument, but broadly speaking, he says, Mexico is on the path towards a new mass society, mass culture, which is unavoidable. Fords, roads, and schools, I'm paraphrasing, will transform Mexico. And then he says... And then you can say goodbye to Mr. Chase's Indians. You cannot import North American virtues uh, and amenities into Mexico without causing the Mexicans to lose their Mexican virtues. So at least he recognizes there are Mexican virtues, but he thinks they are under threat because of Americanization. Now, whether, whether you agree with that or not, at least he does address these questions, which have remained staples in debates about indigenismo and social change in Mexico ever since. And that leads me to my last general conclusion about all these writers. Huxley, as I've said, de uh, debated whether traditional Mexico could withstand American modernity. Lawrence, rather more murkily, with his plume serpent stuff, uh, sees Mexico as a counterpart or a rival to North American modern culture. War and Green, quite anti-American, have no time for that culture. But they don't think Mexico is an alternative. I mean, War's argument would be actually the Catholic Church is the only alternative. Now, what all these four writers have in common is a kind of elitist repudiation of modern mass urban industrial culture and the politics that go with it. And as John Kerry, to go back to the Intellectuals and the Masses book, he argues that this is part of a common syndrome amongst British intellectuals in the interwar period, a critique of mass society, crass consumerism, lowbrow culture, suburbanism and mass politics, often linked also to the influence of the United States. And these people, I think, although they're writing about Mexico, Britain is often at the back of their mind. So when Lawrence declaims against the rabble of the modern world, the farce of popular elections, Green quotes Lawrence favourably, uh, criticising the so-called patriots and socialists in Mexico. Socialism, he said, is a dud. It makes a mush of people, especially savages like the Mexicans. Uh, uh, and I think, therefore, one could summarise that much of what they're doing in criticising Mexico is actually a critique of things they don't like about Britain, about mass politics, about mass consumerism, uh, the role of the state, of state education. Green is always slagging off George Bernard Shaw and the Fabian Society and so on. In other words, and this is my last uh, paragraph, Mexico is in part a stick with which to beat Britain. Green, as we said, came to Mexico in the pay of the Catholic Church. War was paid by the oil interests. But they also came carrying a lot of British political cultural baggage which determined the vituperative line they took about Mexico. War just as clearly saw Mexico through lenses adjusted for European political conflicts, notably the Spanish Civil War. And even Lawrence, in his rather more sort of woolly and mystical way, came to Mexico looking for the primitive values which would counteract the soulless modernity at home. Huxley, while recognising that there was a problem here, um, at least didn't swallow the, the whole thing. 
uh, he observed that North American intellectuals came to Mexico as a place where wishes are fulfilled and the intolerable evils of the civilized world are corrected, in which respect, he says, the Mexican Indians fulfill the same functions that we see in the writings of Voltaire and his contemporaries about the Chinese and the Persians. In other words, these are alien cudgels, I think it's a good phrase, alien cudgels, garotes, sticks, for the beating of domestic malefactors. In other words, you pick on Mexico or you pick on China or the Persians to beat your own society which you dislike. And in a sense, I think, to conclude, these British travel accounts, Lowry I'm leaving out because I don't think he fits, are also alien cudgels. What they tell us about revolutionary Mexico occasionally is interesting. Lawrence Huxley say a few interesting things, but they don't, at the end of the day, tell us all that much. They're not really valuable historical sources. A great deal of what they tell us, as I've said, is exaggerated or plain wrong. They are in part because they had to please their paymasters, the church or the oil interests, uh, in part because they didn't speak Spanish and their travels were either brief or, in Green's case, very unpleasant. But above all, I think they came burdened with their own domestic baggage. They saw Mexico through rather jaded British eyes. They used Mexico as an alien cudgel with which to beat Britain and the society back home they didn't like. If Mexico had not existed, pick up and paraphrase another Voltaire phrase, if Mexico had not existed, they would have had to invent it, and in fact, that is quite often exactly what they did. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Alan. We've got about half an hour for questions, uh, comments, reflections uh, on the the authors, the content of the paper, but maybe stretching it as well. The Mexican context they were in, if you like, as yeah, well. As yeah, as well. So, just a show of hands. I've got a couple of questions, and maybe, maybe start with one. Um, you mentioned alien cudgels, mm. um, and I was thinking, actually, obviously a lot of what was being projected by these uh, authors uh, was racist, and, I w and then I was thinking about, well, how were Mexican authors treating maybe Mexico, not with an alien cudgel, but with a local cudgel. And what sprung to my mind was Carlos Fuentes' uh, comment in one of the short stories that builds up in uh, Agua Camada, uh, Burnt Water, where he refers to the entrance to uh, Metro Insurgentes as the mouth to hell. And of course, this for Fuentes is precisely the world that he doesn't want to enter because it's, it's proletarian. So I wondered, um, alongside these alien cudgels, whether you've reflected also on the local cudgels and, and Mexican authors representing their own culture, maybe also in similar humble, denigrating ways. Well, you, you obviously you could do that. People have done that. I mean, the, the thing is, of course, it's a much bigger, vaster enterprise because, you know, if you have a whole host of Mexicans, be they writers, intellectuals, journalists, <coughs> novelists, poets, all commenting on the Mexico that they're viewing and witnessing and perhaps trying to change. Um, the advantage of this, of course, is it's a finite, limited number of people who are slightly self-selected because they're British and they happen to be sort of literary mm -hmm. novelist people. The American group, as I said, is much larger I and mean, mm -hmm. spans a much wider number and a range of different sort of approaches and people, but that's been done by Helen Del Parr and a number of other people. But um, I'm not quite sure where you'd start in trying, as it were, to comment on the Mexican view of themselves. Obviously, the one feature of the revolution, like any revolution, is it threw up huge differences, big polarizations among Mexicans. There are some 
particularly the old school, and I keep going back to you being more drinking in the Ritz bar, it's quite clear, he says, some of the people I talked to, like there was Fulano du Pal, so-and-so, he had a, an hacienda in Yucatan, it all went wonderfully, the peons were terribly happy, it was productive, along came the revolution, everything went to hell in a handcart. Uh, there was a group like that, a minority of people who kept going back, you know, the good old days of Don Porfirio, and what we've done is we've let the rabble, the mass, um, take control. So that, that's a view which is reflected in the British, but it's also reflected amongst uh, Mexicans as well. Uh, racism is not unusual amongst Mexicans. Um, there's an argument for saying that the revolution, one aspect, one big aspect of the whole revolution, was the way in which the northerners, particularly the Sonorans, came down to central and southern Mexico, which was poorer or Indian, and in a sense sort of got hold of it and sought to change, modernize, and make it progress, but often speaking in a fairly racist way. Mm. Um, I mentioned Salvador Alvarado. I mean, he very much had this sort of idea of a kind of civilizing mission in, in Yucatan. Don't think he was himself particularly racist, but some of the other people who came down from the north certainly were, and they sort of say, you know, we are the northerners, we are a superior people, but we're more white, we're more mestizo, we're more literate, more dynamic, we work hard, Peons of the South, okay, they may have been oppressed for many years, so you can understand their plight, but they need initiative, they need hard work. That's also where the anti-clericalism often mm. comes in, the idea that the church has held back Mexican society, particularly poor rural Indian society, we must liberate these people from the church. Because the problem is if the people don't want to be liberated, then you, you, you have a problem. So there's no question that much of what's being talked about here uh, has its counterparts, its equivalents mm. among the Mexicans. But to sort of really write or discuss that, you'd have to write sort of several volumes of a politico-cultural history of, of Mexico. Mm. It's yeah, a very literature. big task. Yeah. All right, Alan, thank you very much. That's given you a few minutes maybe to get warmed up with a, a set of reflections. Yes, please. What are these hate speech on Chinese? Yeah, um, the second part of the question is interesting, and I, I gave a version of this earlier in the UK, and that was precisely the question I thought at the time I must really try and find out more about the, the, the reaction to these texts in Mexico. I'll start with that and then come to the UK. Um, I have to admit, I haven't made much progress with that, partly just lack of effort and time, but I'm not sure that they had a very big impact. I mean, the story about um, Isaac Ibarra, who was mm -hmm. the governor of Oaxaca in the 1920s, who was, you know, was in touch with Lawrence, they eventually didn't actually meet. And the fact that 40 years later he hadn't a clue who D.H. Lawrence and the Queen Serpent were. And he was an educated, you know, he was a popular guy, but he was a mining engineer, had been a governor of the state, he was literate. So um, I, I think amongst, uh, obviously, the, the Mexican more literary educated university people will have heard of most of these texts. Uh, I said that Malcolm Lowry, which uh, Malcolm Lowry's book is the latest <coughs> And of course, it's also the most literary. It's a novel. It doesn't really, it, I, I say much, I think much more about Larry than it is about Mexico. That is quite a cult book in Mexico mm -hmm. and has, was a, has a very high rating. I mean, Mexican intellectuals and people rate Malcolm Larry, who is one of the classic books about Mexico. Uh, and the other cases, uh, the people who know about it would probably kind of broadly share my opinion, I think, that, that these are pretty prejudiced and stereotyped. Um, on the other hand, Jose Emilio Pacheco, a very good mm -hmm. poet novelist, died not long ago. He wrote a very interesting article about the British accounts of Mexico using these people. And he's quite kind of, you know, he sees both pros and cons. Um, 
I think there's a tendency for some Mexican intellectuals just to, to pigeonhole all of these people as you know, superior uh, European racists who one have no, no dealings with. Pacheco points out that some of what they wrote was actually quite interesting and perceptive. But I don't think any of them that I'm aware of sort of really put down roots in, in Mexico. Uh, if you sort of did a, a poll amongst you know, average Mexicans, I don't know if there's any quote average Mexican here, perhaps not, but um, they might have heard of Graham Greene and the Power of the Glory. I'm sure they would not have heard of Evelyn Waugh they might have heard of Malcolm Lowry, um, but I don't think they, they, these books made a big impact. I think they made an impact in the UK, because it's difficult to measure impact. I mean, we, we often try as historians to say, what was the influence of this text or this book? Um, I think The Power and Glory is widely regarded as one of Graham Greene's, both one of his best books, one of his most influential books, and it's certainly the case. I mean, even recently, my recollection when we had the annual dual in, in the UK, 2015, and there was a certain amount of comment about Mexico in the British press. Graham Greene and the Power of the Glory was, was, was cited, wasn't it? I seem to recollect it. There was even the occasional television reference. So it still, I'm afraid, exerts a somewhat malign influence because whatever you may think of the novel, the fact is Greene's version of Mexico is completely distorted and out of date. It is not in any way a good reflection of the Mexico that he went to. But some people who know very little about Mexican history think it is a kind of valid historical uh, text. Uh, so I think that would be the way I'd probably, mm. probably sum it up. Um, as I, say, I think it would, you could attempt, I suppose, to sort of chase up references. The other interesting thing, which is, again, probably limited within a, a narrow sphere of the British kind of literati, I, I looked at some of these things, you know, where people do their list of the hundred greatest novels, you know, mm. in order of greatness from one to a hundred. What's interesting, if you took, I took a couple, I don't know if they're at all representative. Uh, Malcolm Lowry has shot up the rating. He hardly figures, but uh, in more recent years, the Malcolm Lowry um, Under the Volcano book has become seen as sort of part of the, the, the 20th century mm. literary canon. Power of the Glory is there. Plume Serpent is certainly not there. Other books by Lawrence Sarr are not, not the Plume Serpent, and I think that's right. I mean, the Plume mm. Serpent, <laughs> I think it's a terrible book. Has anybody read The Plume Serpent? Yeah, I have. Yeah. 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 Are you a fan? No, no, very hard going. And it completely loopy in places. Right. Well, that's going to be one of the I think you may well be right about that. I mean, uh, War didn't write a novel. He only wrote, um, Evelyn War only wrote the travel account. I, I'm not aware. Oh, he, he, he says, or someone says, he went to Mexico like they all do, quote, looking for material. And of course, he did write one or two novels. I've read one or two Evelyn War novels, and I think a couple of them, like uh, Scoop and um, the other sort of more light entertainment one. Um, his, his lighter stuff, it's quite acerbic and sarcastic. He, he had a very nasty, sarcastic manner. I mean, some of the things he says are pretty wounding. Um, but, but they, he, he, I've not read the sort of more, quote, serious writing pieces and stuff. I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, I think you may be right. I think he, he was quite a sort of caustic, sarcastic person. I've read some accounts of his life and letters, and, and you certainly do get the impression. So the fact he is rather rude and he slags off Mexico is not a total surprise, because I think he was rude about quite a lot of people and, and other places. Um, 
but I mean, it, 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 his political opinions, well, I mean, obviously, you know, there are other people who agree with him, but uh, I think he does capture something of the political polarization of the late 1930s. I mean, we keep coming back to the Spanish Civil War and how the Spanish Civil War is emblematic and civilization is at stake. He, he has one other good reference which I left out for want of time, where he says, uh, he's saying, the trouble with these Mexican agrarian reformers, they haven't a clue what they're doing. They're completely useless and demagogic. They should look at what Mussolini and the Italians are doing in North Africa, because Italian uh, colonization of North Africa is a model for how civilization can be spread to backward benighted areas. Well, if you think you know, Italian conquest either of uh, Abyssinia or colonization mm. of North Africa is a model of development. Um, but uh, I think you're right that, that the, the, I mean, again, Huxley, uh, I've read a bit of him elsewhere, not a great deal, is clearly much the more cerebral kind of analytical writer. Um, the, the, the novel he wrote, Islas in Gaza, only has a brief section about Mexico, which again somewhat tracks his thought. I mean, these people all replicated the places they went in, in the novels. Um, I wasn't that impressed by his novel, novelish um, excerpts and sections on Mexico, but at least he is trying to sort of make sense of the Although, again, he does say some nasty racist and certainly some very macho sort of things as well. Um, at least you have the sense of something trying to find out about the place. Whereas I think Green and War in particular, they came pretty much looking for what they wanted and, and, and they found it, even when they wasn't there. They wanted to find it. Well, he wasn't there long enough. That was the other thing. I mean, Huxley was only in Mexico for about four or five weeks. Um, he had a Mexican either sort of guide or interlocutor or somebody and he stopped at various estates. He, he did go out in the country in Mexico City for a week, as I quoted. He didn't like Mexico City, and I don't think he, he had any contacts or made any effort to make contacts, so it's not even clear he would have had time to do that. Uh, Lawrence, who was there much longer, Lawrence made three trips to Mexico during 1924-25, which add up to nearly a year. Um, he moved around quite a lot, sometimes in Oaxaca, sometimes he was at Lake Chapala, sometimes in the Northwest. Um, when he was in Mexico City, as I mentioned, the, the Foreign Ministry of Mexico did make an effort to put him in touch with a few people. And there are one or two references in both with him and with other people who mentioned um, meeting him. He didn't seem to get on with them very well. I mean, again, the language may have been a problem, although some of the educated Mexicans would have really spoken perfectly good English anyway. Um, but he doesn't seem to have hit it off. And you don't get much sense that they are plugged into what the Mexican intellectuals of the day are talking about. And they, they, they seem to live a somewhat kind of hermetically sealed um, existence. Even Lowry, and okay, he doesn't write a travel account, it's purely a novel. He was there for two years on two separate occasions, so he was there for quite a long time. But um, he has one very interesting bit which I didn't mention. Uh, he spends time in Oaxaca, again, the southern city, and he gets to know a Mexican there who is not exactly an intellectual, but what he is, he's a Zapotec Indian, or of Indian origin, who works for the called the Banco Nacional de Credito Equidad, which is the Ejidal Credit Bank. And the Ejidal Credit Bank is the bank which gives credit to Ejidal farmers, which are farmers who receive land through the land grant program, through the agrarian reform. And it's an important thing, because you give land to the peasants, they need a bit of credit to get the startup capital to work it. And uh, Lowry apparently befriended uh, this guy, and they got to know each other quite well. And he does briefly figure in the other volcano story. Um, uh, his name was, I can't remember, 
and in some of, not so much in the novel, but in some of Lowry's letters and some of Lowry's biographies refer to this relationship. So you do have a case of someone who, by virtue of being in Mexico for longer, um, they, were, they were drinking companions, as you might expect with Lowry, um, but he did forge quite a close relation. He, he goes back to Oaxaca on his second visit and tries to find the guy, and he, he seems to have disappeared and gone somewhere else. So there is one example of one of them who did make an effort and did actually uh, forge a, a personal relationship, and he kind of draws a bit upon that for his book. But my sense is that none of the others, um, you know, War had his, his chums in the bar. Mm. I don't think they were, kind of, they certainly weren't intellectuals, as far as I can tell. So it's Sarah and, and then Estella. what I've read Charles Kell's novels and sort of somehow letters and writing about these people, I'm not sure that any of them had a sort of considered position on, on that. I mean, in terms of migration into Britain, um, obviously you had anti-Semitism connected to Jewish migration, in particular in London, and war makes a quite a few anti-Semitic comments. I'm not sure he makes them in this book, but in other places. Um, but I would say it was more the first, you made a reference at the beginning of the question about a sort of rather diffuse tendency just to see the world in racial terms. And to, you know, Indians are backward and they're savage. Now whether they're backward because they've been oppressed for hundreds of years, uh, is it a thing that could it ultimately be corrected? I'm fairly sure Huxley would have said that. Um, I probably could think of a few references which bear that out. Um, I'm not so sure about war, my sense with him is it's pretty sort of deeply dyed stuff. Um, I don't think Graham, I mean, Graham Greene, if you think about it over his career, had quite close relations with people who traveled widely. He'd been, he went to Africa, he went to the Congo, went to Central America, he wrote about a lot of diverse places. So I think he was probably more relaxed. I don't get the sense that race was a kind of key um, defining element in his way of seeing the world. Lawrence, though, yeah, I mean, Lawrence has this thing about savages who have something within them that we don't have and he's trying to find and somehow get hold of. But at the same time, Lawrence does say some pretty horrible mm. racist things, both about Indians. I think he come out some of the anti-Semitic remarks. Um, you know, there is a school of thought. I mean, there's a vast amount written about D.H. Lawrence, and there's probably more written about him than any of these other people. Graham Greene, I guess, comes second. I haven't attempted to read from all the Lorenzian stuff. A lot of it is very literary, so it's not really my primary interest. But there's no question that a lot of uh, the things Lawrence writes about when he gets into politics and mass society has a fascistic ring to it. Um, and part of that is notions of sort of racial uh, hierarchy and blood and belonging. And, uh, so it, again, it's very murky. It's not at all kind of well thought out. It's certainly there. Because the thing is that, as you, I think you were suggesting, pretty well everybody in Europe, and indeed a lot of Mexicans too, saw the world through some sort of racial lens of, of you know, either a superiority or some are more advanced than others, whether they'll catch up to another question, how you make them catch up. The Indianistas in Mexico um, came out with, I would say, not so much racist comments. I mean, their whole premise was Indians were ultimately the 
same as everybody else. They could be uplifted and educated, but in doing so, you had to adopt very paternalist policies. We knew we know the way to make the Indians good, loyal, hardworking Mexicans, which is what our goal is, and that was the tradition of kindness and the of the people. So it was, in a way, enlightened, but it was also also quite uh, quite paternalist. But um, I mean, if you just I just think uh, look at the correspondence that comments between Churchill and Roosevelt during the Second World War, I mean, that's steeped in, in sort of racial images and references to the Japanese and so mm. on. So it, it would be pretty amazing if you could find people who were not a bit racist mm. to be quite honest. Yeah, well, that slide comes back to, to the previous uh, question. Um, I think that Graham Greene view of Mexico of uh, not so much from the lawless roads, which I suspect not many people have read, but the power and the glory I think was quite influential and does get raked over by the jury so often when people are trying to make sense of Mexico. I mean, let's face it, Mexico, uh, indeed Latin America, is not a very big item in British culture or news. Uh, you could cite endless examples of the way in which uh, Latin America uh, does not get very good informed mm. coverage. I mean, mm. if you newspapers and the television mm. news. Um, there is kind of more recently more interest in film, in music, in dance. So it's not as if Latin America doesn't have a sort of cultural presence in Britain. I'd say it's increased as some Latin Americans have moved, but also a lot of younger British people have traveled to Latin America, which in previous decades would have been difficult or very unlikely. Um, so I think there's a bit more cultural interest, but when it comes to actually hard information, um, that's a bit thin on the ground, and so it's possible for somebody like Graham Greene to leave a marker, as I say, particularly through the novel, and of course, let me, I didn't get round to my last picture, I might as well put that up. Um, movies as well, I mean, there you have the rather sort of idyllic um, shot of the Whiskey Priest, as played by Henry Fonda, I don't think the Whiskey Priest really looked much <laughs> like that, I mean, the one that Graham Greene encountered in real life, I don't think looked much like that, and you know, Blue-eyed, uh, doesn't look particularly Mexican, Indian, mestizo to me. But anyway, um, I think the combination <coughs> of the novel and the way it's been depicted in the numerous films of *Power and the Glory* that has established a certain resonance. And I, I, you can see when Mexico crops up uh, that, that that's one of the staple cultural references. I'm not sure of any of the other um, accounts. As I say, I don't, I don't think *The Plumed Serpent* and, and D.H. Lawrence has left much. And I don't think they were very influential, as I said right at the beginning. A, because, I mean, for one thing, what the British, the British were quite important in Mexico up to the revolution, up to 1910. They had big economic interests. Lord Cowdery was the big oil pioneer. They had railroads. They had other uh, mining interests. The combination of the revolution, even more important, the First World War, Britain has to liquidize a lot of its investments, particularly in, in elsewhere in Latin America as well. And the Americans, who were very big in Mexico anyway, they just move in. So by 1920, uh, in terms of foreign influence, foreign uh, muscle in Mexico, it's the Americans above all. And the Mexicans know that. I mean, when it's interesting, when they uh, Cardenas expropriated the Anglo-American oil companies in 1938, Green and War were both there. For War came just after Green was there. Um, there's a very nice. Uh, the, the Mexican Minister of the Interior, Gobernación, used to send sort of spies out to, to sort of say, what are the people talking about? It's very amateurish stuff. I mean, you read this stuff and, you know, this is 
this, this is not Foucaultian surveillance state exactly, but some guy is sent out to sit on a bus in Mexico City, what are the people talking about? And he picks up a conversation, he reports after the oil expropriations, this guy is saying to his cuate on the, on the bus, something like, well, you know, the Americans could cause us trouble, but the British are happy. I mean, the British is you know, gastado, quemado, and, and you know, anyway, it's not that we, we don't know the Second World War is about to start, but there's you know, the Munich crisis coming up. So the British have got so much on their plate that Mexico is not a big, big item for them to worry about. But by the same token, you know, they're not going to be able to do much in Mexico. They, didn't, they couldn't do anything about the oil expropriation. They broke diplomatic relations, but I mean, that had, you know, they patched it up a few years later. So by then, by the 30s and even the 20s, Britain was not really a big power in respect to Mexico. And so um, you don't get, now in the case of the Americans, it's completely different. And that's why the cultural links become very important. And the Mexicans were quite good at using what they nowadays call soft power to try to influence the Americans. Uh, art, culture, museum expositions, and grooming and cultivating American intellectuals. So people like Frank Tannenbaum, Columbia academic, or Ernest Gruning, noted journalist, later senator for Alaska, they come down to Mexico in the 20s and the Mexicans treat them very well. They're given access to high-ranking Mexicans, they're given information. Gruning writes a really good book on Mexico in 1928, uh, which he can do because he's had access to a lot of, of government documents and information. Um, so they are privileged and they then serve as very useful mediators between Mexican government and the US government at times of difficulty. In 1927, there was the last kind of serious crisis when people talked about US intervention, which didn't happen, I don't think probably was, was going to happen. But people like Tannenbaum, they immediately activate all their links. The labor unions have quite strong links across the border as well. So the US is now the really important other that you have to deal with. And the intellectuals and the writers play a role in that. But the British, I don't think, had that role. I've got one final question in the centre. Just before I hand over to you, I just wanted to check if there were any other uh, people that wanted to ask a question sort of last minute and then we could take a round. No? So the final question to you, sir. Yeah, just the power and glory. see that um, one way of uh, looking at, and indeed this comes out with both Graham Greene in the war with, with, with two Catholic writers, that they're, 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 though they criticize a lot of aspects of Mexico, they do come back to the fact that at the, at the, at the bottom, Mexican society still has a core of Catholic belief and Catholic values. And so Graham Greene, one of the few things he says that's a bit positive is when he refers to the, 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 the basic religiosity of ordinary Mexicans, evil in war, says in a slightly kind of more flippant off the cuff way. So I, th I think you're right that obviously the, the Catholic take on Mexico is that it's not that Mexico is entirely bad, it's because a bad clique of demagogues and leftists have taken over and are persecuting the good God-fearing people of Mexico. I can't speak to how much influence that image had or the whole story and the whole thing had in, in Britain. Um, you, don't, you have to be a British historian, I guess, to sort of do that, but my, my excuse is I'm a historian of Mexico, so I can judge what they saw and did in Mexico. I'm not really competent to say what impact did these sources and these books have 
in the UK, except as I, as I said a bit earlier, I mean, The Power and the Glory is a, a fairly well-known book. Um, I'm trying to think whether it was ever like a set book, you know, whether kids had to read it for O-levels and A-levels, not A-level versions. Um, I can't recollect that it, it ever quite made it to that status, but certainly of all these books, The Power and the Glory, I guess, would be the one that had the most resonance amongst people in Britain. Um, of course, the nature of British society and the role of the church and religion in it, I would guess, and again I'm not an expert on British culture, is that it's not nearly such a big issue as obviously it was in Catholic countries like Spain. And there's no question that the Spaniards are interested in Mexico, Mexico, Mexico's interested in Spain, not just because it's the Madre Patria, the mother country and all that stuff, but because they're both going through similar phases of social and economic and political upheaval, the Red Revolution, the Spanish Civil War, and they look at each other position of the church is absolutely central in both of those conflicts. So the Mexicans look at what's going on in, in Spain in the 30s, and the Spaniards look at what's going on. A lot of Mexicans were participating one way or another. Cardinal supported the Republic. 30,000 Spanish Republican refugees, at least probably more, came as exiles to Mexico, had a big impact in Mexico. So there's a very close cultural tie, and a lot of that revolves around the whole question of the church and anti-clericalism. My guess is that Britain being a kind of but I don't think it was nearly such a big issue. And of course, well, the British, by 1938, they've got Munich to worry about, and then they've got six years of the Second World War to worry about as well. On that note, we shall finish. You mentioned at one stage that um, in Power and the Glory that um, Graham Greene mentioned constant reference to dentists and dentistry. Yes, I don't know. It's and very strange. It keeps mentioning dentists. It looks like this, this whiskey priest in Henry Fonda definitely went to oh, a good dentist. He, he, <laughs> he had a good orthodontist, didn't he? Yeah. So maybe rather than the six years of the Second World War, I thought I'd try and finish on the dentistry yeah. of, uh, yeah. of this whiskey priest as a more positive note. But many thanks to Alan for his excellent <laughs> talk. Thank you.